Now please remain standing and turn your Bibles to Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, at least in our English editions. Malachi, and chapter 1, starting in verse 1, going till verse 5. Malachi, chapter 1, verse 1, going to verse 5. This is God's word. Give it your full attention. The oracle of the word of Yahweh to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, said Yahweh, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares Yahweh. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, Yahweh of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country, and the people with whom Yahweh is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is Yahweh beyond the border of Israel. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever You may be seated. These familiar phrases, once upon a time, and they lived happily ever after. Most people live as if their lives were based upon fairy tale logic. And the only rules for success, as if the only rules for success are how hard you try and how much you feel you want the end. And it's true those things are helpful, but life doesn't go like fairy tales, although we might hope for it to. Why is this the case? Because of sin. Not only in the world, as if the the world and other people were to blame for all our problems, but also because of the sin within us which we love. Happily Ever After tells us that what we ought to be, not what is in the world now, as fairy tales often are. They tell us what ought to be, not what is. The world seems like a world of disappointment, therefore. And the book of Malachi, this was written during a time of Israelite disappointment, or at least it seems so. Israel seemed to be living in the age directly after the age of God's great activity. Uh, This generation had their fathers and grandfathers' tales of God's great miraculous acts of taking Israel out of captivity from Babylon back into their home of Israel. Their fathers told them how they had come back to a desolate land, and after decades of work, they had finally begun rebuilding God's house, the temple, which had laid desolate for 70 years, the temple where God dwelled and showed his love for Israel in the Old Testament, and where they reciprocated and showed their love for the Lord. Not that God needs a house, as we all know, he is above the heavens in glory and splendor, but through the temple he showed his love and blessed Israel and had fellowship with them in a covenantal way, in a way that was very special for Israel. It showed God's love. The question of Malachi is, 
Where is the blessing? These were the questions on the lips of this generation who are very who are confident in their own righteousness. Where is our happily ever after? Why are we in poverty? Why are oppressors, the Persians, still ruling over us, controlling us? And where is my vine and my fig tree that you promised in Zechariah? Does God even love us? And God does not leave these questions merely to stay upon the lips of Israel. In Malachi's day, he answers them directly in the book of Malachi, starting with the most important question, does God even love us? This is the first section that he deals with this. This is verse 1, uh, starting in verse 1, rather, I should say, where we're dealing with the promise and the backtalker. So verse 1, the burden of the word of Yahweh to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says Yahweh, but you say, how have you loved us? Even with all that backstory of a people who have grumbled against God, wondering if he even loves them. It ought to give us pause that God, not grumbling Israel, is the first one to speak in this book. He says, I have loved you. And Israel responds almost sarcastically, but he is the first to speak. Why is it in this form, I have loved you? This shouldn't make us wonder if God will continue loving Israel. Israel in the present, as if God is saying, I have loved you in the past, but who knows about the future? That is not what he's saying. No, it's a statement of a fact about the past and the present continuing in the future. A fact of the past that continues in the present and future. It could quite literally be translated in those simple, familiar three words, I love you. God starts his book for Israel with a declaration of love, not wrath, even for all the wrong that Israel has done and is now doing, as Malachi will soon make clear in the book as a whole. Praise God for his continuing steadfast love. One of the first things he says is, I love you in this book. He answers his people in all ages with these words, I love you and I have loved you in your suffering. But we have God's promise here of his love. How does Israel talk back to God from this promise? The drama of this book is that Israel doubts this love of God. Israel feels that they have done what is right in God's sight, and God is therefore in their debt, but that they have been forgotten by God in general. Israel says back to God's promise of past and present love, How have you loved us? You can almost hear the sarcasm in the statement. Christian, if this is your position, then find hope that God not only hears your hurting complaints and answers first, or rather speaks first to you, Lord not only reassures us of his love, but as we have seen in the next verse in Malachi, God even answers our complaints, objections, and even sometimes blasphemous back-talking. So great his love. Let us hear God's answer to this doubt of his promise of steadfast love by these back-talkers as we go secondly into God's answer, which is truly in the rest of this passage. 
His answer is, my electing love is proven not only by my love, which you doubt, but by my hatred. It's very interesting. God's answer is, my electing love is proven not only by my love, which should be obvious to Israel, but by my hatred as well. Israel's sarcastic answer of, this is your love, God? The Lord responds, continuing in verse 2, Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Esau, but, or Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. We must be sure here, God shows in this passage that his love is not given to everyone. His answer makes that very, very clear. His profession of love is for Jacob and the people descended from Jacob specifically, that is, the people of faith. What does God mean by this? Here we see God's electing love. God elected Jacob before he had faith. That is, God chose Jacob, and he did not choose Esau. You remember the story, which you can read about in Genesis 25. The chosen man of God, Isaac, fathered twins, Jacob and Esau, before they had done anything good or bad. In fact, while they were still in their mother's womb, God said these momentous words, The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Isn't it surprising that God's love was upon the weaker of the two, Jacob? And it was not upon the stronger and the older of the two, Esau. Why would he do this when building a great nation from nothing? Wouldn't we expect him to select the firstborn and the strongest one? Why did he elect Jacob over Esau? First, because it shows God's sovereignty, his electing love, so clearly. He loves whom he loves. God's decision is not based upon the merits of the person or what they've done in the past. Jacob wasn't even born yet, and God chose him. Jacob was the younger and the weaker, and God chose him. God did not base his choice upon how strong or how able Jacob was. Jacob was chosen, first and foremost, because our sovereign God freely gave him his love. Like Moses, a murderer, it was not how good Jacob was that he was chosen. This is how salvation works, and it's starkly shown in this story. And second, God selected Jacob over Esau because though the weak and sinful Jacob, through rather the weak and sinful Jacob, God could show just how undying that love is, how powerfully it works in the weak, sinful people. And finally, that our salvation is not based upon our own worthiness. You see, the point God is getting at with mentioning Jacob is not only that Jacob was chosen before he could have deserved God's love, that's true, but it's actually a far deeper point. The point that God is making here is that his electing love has always been undeserved. With Jacob and now in the time of Malachi, 
even from the very patriarchs of Israel, thousands of years before Malachi and his people were born. Why is this important to Malachi? Because the people of Malachi's day had begun to think they deserved God's love and his blessings through their obedience, as we have seen. You see, we sinfully think, as sinful humans always do, our own self-worth is great. We inflate our self-worth based upon what we think we deserve. The descendants of Jacob in Malachi's day, Israel, had begun to think of themselves as in some way good in themselves, or that God was somehow unjust because he kept back the blessings they were so sure they deserved. Let's let God's answer fill us, brothers. It is not about how deserving we are. Blessings come from God's sovereign choice first and foremost. That is part of why we ask him in prayer. Not because we deserve it, but because God loves us. And we often freely give us blessings as part of his love. None of us are deserving in and of ourselves. From the greatest to the least. God's love is not because of the loveliness of the object. In other words, like Jacob but because of the loveliness of the lover, that is God himself. God has committed himself to Jacob, to the people of God's covenant faithfulness, and he will never let them go. And so it is with you and I, brothers and sisters. God loves us not because we are lovable, but because he is loving. And we ought to rejoice in these things, Here we find assurance, not in the works that you do, but in the God that you worship. Let us learn from God's answer that God is not unjust, quite the opposite. He always gives us more blessing than we deserve, and he indeed does give us blessing. And he always gives judgment toward the wicked, as he proves in these verses. His answer not always is assurance of his love, But God actually gives proof of it here. What is his proof? His proof, since the people of Malachi's day would not recognize his love, was in pointing towards his own hatred. He did not only say, Jacob, I have loved, verse 2. He says something more, doesn't he? Esau, I have hated. Both signs were part of the same promise. To love one and hate the other is one promise. So if God can prove either side of this promise to be true, logically both sides are proven true because God cannot lie or be false. If God has hated Esau, he has loved Israel. He proves quite well that his covenant hatred has not lessened toward the descendants of Esau, the Edomites, in verses 3 through 5. This wrath against Edom was part of God's love for Israel. As the salvation of Israel is out of wickedness into holiness. He not only loves Israel, but in his hatred of sin, brings them out from wrath. Brings them out from the wickedness around them. Uh, As we know, the Edomites had in recent history done horrible things to Israel. We read this in Psalm 137. Feel the boiling hatred of this wickedness that justly had grown within Israel for Edom. And from the overthrow of this wickedness, which Israel was to see with their own eyes, they were to see the proof of God's love 
for them and say, verse 5, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel, God's continuing burning hatred for wickedness would be seen and glorified. So from all this, we should realize the better question that Israel should have asked was not, God, how have you loved us? But the better question for Israel is, as God has been pointing out, how can God love us? Are we not as wicked as the Edomites? Were we not from the same stock as the Edomites? Were Jacob and Esau not from the same father? How can he love us? This is the ultimate proof of God's love. How can he love us? Because, as anyone who reads Malachi can find, Israel was wicked as well. Edom was not the only wicked country. Even recently, God had reprimanded Israel by throwing her into captivity and almost utterly annihilating her until his mercy was revealed to her. How can God love those wretched Israelites who backtalk God, doubt his love, and even desecrate his sacrifices and doubt his goodness? We are in this story as well, you and I, no better than Israelites, brothers. No, you and I are in some ways just as bad, if not worse, than these Israelites. If you do not believe in God, then you sin against him, just like Edom, and are doomed to ruin jackals of the desert and wicked countries, as verse 3 through 5 says. For the, the wickedness of the world is not gone, and God's hatred of wickedness and the wicked is not gone. And for those who die in their wickedness and not in Christ, it will never leave. And on the other hand, if we trust in Christ, we have given greater revelation of God's love in the New Testament for us, greater assurances of his covenant faithfulness, and especially undeniable proof of his love in Christ Jesus our Lord. We who doubt these assurances have the greater sin, and even these Israelites, even then these sinners in Malachi's day who sarcastically said to God, how have you loved us? For what does God say about the proof of God's love to us as New Testament believers? 1 John 4, 9 through 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be a propitiation for our sins. The sacrifice of Christ the, proof, the, rather, the sacrifice of Christ for our sins was the highest imaginable act of God's ancient electing love towards Jacob and the greatest proof that could ever be of his love. Jesus is the proof that God loves unworthy sinners and the proof that God judges the wicked. For upon the cross, he took the sin of Jacob upon him. And why? That Jacob's wickedness might be purged in the wrath of God with him as Jacob's substitute, Romans 5.8. God shows his love for us in this, that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. See, his love, his electing love, is certainly for those who are unworthy. But he makes us worthy, brothers and sisters. So we may ask again an answer. With absolute proof for those who believe in Christ, the question of Malachi 1.1, how have you loved us, God? 
God answers once and for all, I sent my son, Christ, who died for you. Let us do away with fairy tale logic, which says we can purchase, secure, and deserve our happily ever after ourselves. If we work hard enough, let us do away with, and they lived happily ever after, unless it comes with and from Christ. God loved us so much that he sent his son to cause our salvation, just like Jacob, and to secure our salvation before we were even born. Our salvation is not supposed to focus upon us and our work or our love. And this was the problem of the people of Malachi. They had started again to focus upon themselves and even our own wickedness. It is not to be focusing upon ourselves, but upon Christ. Focusing upon the Messiah. Again, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, and it forces us to look towards Christ as there is one coming, a voice crying out in the wilderness. Jesus Christ is the one that is foretold in Malachi that he would come into his temple and purify it. As we close, brothers, it is Christ that they were supposed to look to, and so ought we. Let us learn that God's love always comes first and then our faith. Let us learn that God's love through Christ always comes first and then our faith and repentance. That God's love is never unrequited. The Christian always turns away from self to God and then to Christ. Look not unto yourselves, brothers, as if you could be ever worthy. God's greatest blessing and our greatest happiness in life and in death. Through him alone we receive these happy words from God. I love you. Let us praise him. Lord, we thank you that your love for us is so undeserved. We thank you, Lord, for we could not have a deserving love. We, people of, of Adam by nature, desire to be God hate, in fact, what you have created us. Hate, in fact, the positions that you have placed us in. Lord, we pray that instead of these things, instead of asking, how have you loved us? That we would, like Israel, look back and see how you have shown your love and how you have shown your destruction of the wicked. How you have brought us not only from wickedness into holiness, even in our own lives, but far more how you have brought us from wickedness into righteousness in Christ Jesus our Lord. We pray, Lord, that we would look to you for our every provision. Lord, whether it be in persecution under, uh, as the people in Malachi's day, oppressive governors, we ask, Lord, that instead of extenuating our sin and thinking upon our deservedness, Lord, that we would look to you and sacrifice offerings of thanksgiving and love, that we would do so from our very heart in a principled manner, knowing that you are worthy, O Lord, for you have proven beyond a shadow of a doubt your love. May we trust in the assurances that are given to us by Christ, that the thing that has been worked in us we brought to the to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. We love you, Lord, and praise you 
And again, ask all these things and pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.